Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we look to His Word. Our Father and our God, we uh, thank You for this uh, day, for this day of worship. This is what we were made for. And uh, God, You have restored us to the purpose for which You created us, to worship You. Uh, Not just in our gatherings on Sunday, as important as that is, but to worship You with all our lives. in, In not just our words, but in how we live. And Father, you've given us your word so that we may be instructed for that worship and empowered by your spirit. So I pray that you would do that for us this morning as we look to your word, to some hard teachings from your son, our Lord. I pray, Father, that you would give us hearts to listen and respond in obedience uh, for the sake of his name as witnesses of Jesus and also for your glory, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue in our study in the Gospel of Mark. I have postponed my uh, thought question for a little later in the sermon. Actually, there are three of them. You have to wait for them. Uh, And I'm also beginning to get a little creative with my titles, but I may go back to my usual straight from the verse titles. But uh, salty disciples, you know, we don't associate saltiness with disciples. Salty people are often not people we associate with being disciples of Jesus, but Jesus calls us to be salty, even as we heard this morning. Uh, We are in the third section of the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus, having completed his ministry in Galilee, where he has demonstrated that he is indeed who he said he is. Mark tells us from the very beginning that this is the Son of God, the Christ, uh, through whom God is bringing about his kingdom. Uh, Jesus opens up his ministry with, uh, with the claim that in him the kingdom of God has come near because he is the king. And he has demonstrated that through his authoritative teaching, through his power over disease, over, uh, over death itself, and, uh, and, and over demons and casting them out, having defeated uh, the, the wicked one's temptations. Now he's making his way from Galilee to Jerusalem to accomplish the mission on which God, had, his father, had sent him to be handed over to, to, to the enemies of the faith, uh, to, to, to men who are in authority, and to, be, and to suffer at their hands, to die, to be, to bur- to be buried, and, and to rise again. And his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem is not only to accomplish his mission, but to prepare the people through whom his mission will continue, his disciples. And, and through this journey, we, as we have seen, uh, he has already done this once and he, uh, twice we have seen, he has predicted what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and in every one of those predictions, the, the disciples do not respond appropriately. The first time he predicts his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, uh, Peter rebukes him. And we saw last time in the, in the second prediction that while he, on the way to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, they were discussing among themselves who was the greatest. The most inappropriate response that one could have uh, to, to the one who is the greatest, who has become the least in dying for us and for our sake. But in every one of these cases, Jesus doesn't reject his disciples. 
he rebukes them, but he also corrects and teaches them. We saw that in the first rejection when Peter, uh, Peter rebukes him. Jesus responds with this hard teaching. If anyone would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. He says, if anyone wants to save his life, they will lose it. But if anyone was willing to lose their life for his sake, they will save it. Uh, these are words that we read and we have heard them over and over and again. And, and we don't see how, what they mean for our, for our lives. And Jesus teaches the same thing again after the, they were discussing who was the greatest. He tells them, uh, how they ought to live as his disciples. It's, it's the same instruction of denying themselves and taking up their, their cross and following after him. But in the second, after the second prediction, he teaches them, he says, we read last time, he sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's what it means to deny oneself and take up the cross and follow him. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and Taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Their quest is not for greatness. Their quest should be ought, ought to be the least, and, and to be a servant of all, and to welcome those who are considered of, to be of lowly status in this world. Now Jesus uh, continues on in his teaching uh, in this, uh, after this second passion prediction, the, one, the teaching that began uh, last Sunday continues on. And we see in, in, in this week's uh, passage, chapter 9, verses 38 to 50, Jesus teaches them what, how they ought to treat others who may not be part of their group uh, as those who are called by Jesus, those who serve Jesus. Uh, he calls them uh, in the earlier section we saw last time in this teaching that they ought to, to welcome those who are considered of lowly status. But here, he teaches them that they ought not to, uh, they ought not to cause them to stumble, those, those little ones that he speaks of. And thirdly, the title of our sermon, he calls his disciples to be salty, to be salted by fire, to, uh, to, to be salt in this world, and to be salty for the sake of peace with one another. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 50, and these seemingly disconnected sayings are actually continuous with what we saw last time. Uh, the disciples are still on their quest for greatness. This time, not in comparison among each other, but by, uh, by comparing themselves with someone and exalting themselves with someone who they consider as outsider from their group. So Jesus continues to teach them as to what must be their response, uh, how they should respond to those who are outsiders, those they would think of as those who are of lowly status, and uh, previously it was about welcoming such people, but here it's about not causing such people to stumble. So our first question, has someone excluded you from something because you were not an insider? First service, somebody said they didn't let them into Costco. <laughs> but, uh, uh, has somebody ever excluded you from something because you were not considered an insider? Yeah, what's, what's an example of that? Or maybe you were the one who was excluding someone. Health insurance. Uh, yeah, these are these practical matters of life, but also uh, even from childhood. Children know who are the in crowd and, and who you have to associate with in order to, to make it into that in crowd and so on. 
so this is, a, this is a reality that we face in this world. And apparently it's not a new thing. It's been around forever. We read in 38 to 41, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The first, after the first prediction, it was Peter who rebuked Jesus. But now here it's John who brings this report. Uh, Peter, John, James... These are, the, in, these are the inner circle. First time after the first prediction, it's, it's Peter who has this disappointing response. Here it's John. And the third time he makes his prediction, it will be James and John. So if the inner circle doesn't get it as to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, which of the others will? But thanks be to God through Christ that uh, they all will one day follow Jesus. But right here they don't. John said to Jesus, Teacher... Again, wrong title. Rabbi was good before, but after Peter's confession that you are the Christ, Rabbi is not enough. He's far more than a rabbi. And he says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Notice that. Uh, casting out demons has been about the mission of Jesus right from the beginning. The very first miracle in, in the synagogue, uh, not only was his authoritative teaching, but was his authoritative word at which demons must go. And Jesus, when he grants them the authority uh, to be sent... He gives them the authority not only to preach, but to cast out demons. And they come back reporting, uh, even demons submit to us. But now they see someone else casting out demons. It's the same mission as Jesus. It's the same mission as the disciples. They're expelling the powers of darkness because the kingdom of God has come. And moreover, this person is doing it in the name of Jesus. Uh, so Mark's attention is not so much on this man, but it is in the, on the disciples' response to this man. So he doesn't tell us enough to say whether this is a genuine disciple or not. But we have enough to tell us that this man is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and apparently he's successful at that. And what, did, what was John's response? John's response should have been another person who is serving the kingdom of God by opposing the powers of evil and, and freeing people from their distress caused by the powers of evil. They should rejoice. But John says, instead, we tried to stop him, forbid him, put obstacles in his way, keep him from doing what he's doing. Why, John, why? John tells us because he was not following us. <laughs> Wait a second, John you're supposed to be following Jesus. Jesus said, didn't say anything about anyone following you. <laughs> um, but John is now part of this authoritative group that Jesus has established, who has been empowered. And now an outsider is doing what he believed that only they should be doing. And he's not happy. But not only that, maybe what's eating his lunch is the fact that they, as the authorized, authoritative disciples had failed to do this very thing. Remember when they came back from the Mount of Transfiguration and uh, uh, the, Jesus and the three encounter uh, John was with Jesus, but he comes back, the disciples had not been able to uh, exercise the demon from the father who had brought the son, whereas this man who's an outsider has succeeded and maybe John's just a little jealous. But probably more so that uh, he, he doesn't think that those outside of their group 
uh, those he could very well mean by though he's not following us as including Jesus and them he's not one of those 12 he's an outsider but Jesus had disciples who are not part of the 12 so he could be one of them and he probably expected a commendation from Jesus very good John I'm glad you stopped him but that's not what he gets Jesus rebukes him Jesus says do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to repeat to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us repeatedly you hear this phrase about in the name of Jesus for the sake of Jesus so the man was casting out demons in your name in Jesus's name and Jesus says here anyone who does a mighty act in his name he says don't stop them because this man whoever he is obviously recognizes the power and authority of Jesus because he sees that uh, in the name of Jesus, demons should flee. This is not just a magical incantation. In, in Acts chapter 19, there are uh, the sons of Seva who try the same thing and they get beat up by the demons because they were just using the name of Jesus as a magical spell. That's not how it works. So Jesus says, if this man is for us, uh, this man is not against us, uh, then don't forbid him. He's doing the work of the kingdom in that uh, he is casting out the powers of evil. Uh, he is freeing people from their distress, even as Jesus does, and even as the disciples do. Uh, and then Jesus has this brilliant twist uh, where he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Not only these mighty works like miracles of uh, driving out demons, even a simple gesture as giving someone a cup of water, which anybody can do, but notice, because you belong to Christ, is someone who will be rewarded by God himself. And notice, who is the recipient, who is the beneficiary of this simple act of kindness? It's the disciples. They are the ones who are the benefactors. They are the ones who cast out demons. But Jesus says, there's going to come a day when you are going to need a cup of water because of persecution, because of the trials you will face, and at that time, you need someone to give you a cup of water, and those who do that out of kindness because you belong to Christ, they will be rewarded. In other words, this man also, who does it in the name of Jesus, and if he's indeed a disciple of Jesus, will not lose his reward, so do not stop him. Time for our second question. Have you ever taken extreme steps to keep yourself from sinning? There are two assumptions here, that you do sin and you don't want to sin. <laughs> uh, I, have you had to take extreme steps? I'm not just talking giving up chocolate or, uh, uh, or offloading an app from your phone. Yeah, Nancy, what did you... Yeah, someone, uh, I was talking to Laura Rodriguez's uh, mother about her conversion, and uh, she said after she came to know Christ, uh, she had to tear up a lot of pictures, and she had people she had disassociate, disassociate herself from life because uh, they were the people, and many, uh, you know, stayed away from her because of her faith, and uh, because of their associations were the ones that were, part of her life before she came to know Christ. So what is the, the transition from uh, 
not forbidding perceived outsiders from doing the works of God to this section. Well, the disciples are still pursuing greatness, not as in comparison amongst ourselves, but in exaltation with those who are outside. And Jesus, who had previously told them to welcome those who are of lowly status, now instructs them, uh, now minister to those who are of lowly status by not causing them to stumble. First, he uh, speaks of not causing others to stumble, and then he will go on to talk about they themselves not stumbling. So we read in verses, uh, four, verse uh, 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So part of being a disciple of Jesus is not causing others to stumble. And these other ones, Jesus identifies as the little ones. Uh, we spoke of the little ones last time. It, it includes children because children were, not, were considered of those who had no status, who were a burden to society, uh, who could dealt with in any, other, any way the father uh, or their caretaker was pleased. Uh, but that was not the, they were not the only little ones. Anyone who was considered of lowly status, the foreigner, the widow, uh, anyone that would not add status to those who would welcome them. Uh, Jesus said, those are the people you're kind of, you're to welcome. But here, he says, do not even cause them to stumble, like uh, the person, the outsider, who was taking steps of faith, and by John forbidding them, uh, was he causing them to stumble in that faith? Uh, because they see the disciples of Jesus forbidding them from doing what God has called them to do? Or anyone else for that matter, uh, anyone who believes me to sin, the word for it's not just for sin, for it, it includes anything that would cause shipwreck of one's faith. It would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around their neck and were thrown into the sea. It would, the, the great millstone is the, not the handheld millstone, but the one that's uh, donkey, donkey driven, the industrial strength millstone. Uh, if that was around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, you're not coming back. And uh, the greater dishonor is that they can't even retrieve your body to bury. That would be better than what? To fall into the hands of the living God who is a consuming fire because we caused someone else to stumble in, in, in how we treated them. That they would be turned away from Christ because of our actions because of our excluding them from God's call in their lives, of what God is doing that to bring them to himself. Not only do we not cause others to stumble as disciples, but we also ought not to stumble ourselves. So we read in verses 43 and following, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is, not, it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. First, we need to recognize Jesus is using uh, figurative language, uh, hyperbole. Uh, Jesus doesn't want anybody to be, have a millstone around their neck and thrown into the sea. Nor does he want anybody's arms or uh, feet to be cut off or eyes to be gouged out uh, because scripture prohibits uh, maiming anybody, including oneself. And also, it's pretty obvious that one-eyed people still sin. So do one-handed people and one-foot people. 
right? So chopping off your limb is not going to help you to stop sinning. So what Jesus is saying through this figurative language is, take the extreme steps that are necessary to keep you from sinning, because sin is what he came to save us from. And it makes no sense for us to continue to sin if we have been saved from sin. Paul tells us the same thing, same thing in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Uh, it's, a, it's a passage that talks about how grace is not a license to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Uh, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. See, we were using the instruments of our body, our hands, our feet, our eyes, to serve sin, because sin was our master. We had to obey the dictates of sin. And sin operated through the flesh, sin uh, came in through the temptations of the devil and the attractions of the world. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, sin is no longer our master. Sin is still present in this world. Sin still seeks mastery over us. But Jesus has transferred us if we have come to faith. Sin is no longer our master. We have a new master. God is our master. And we ought not to obey sin and its dictates, but rather obey our new master. But that's uh, something that takes a moment by moment yielding to the spirit of God and saying no to the flesh, knowing no to the devil, no to the world, saying you are no longer our master. We don't have to... Obey your dictates. So it makes no sense for us to continue on in sin. And the call of Jesus here is for disciples uh, to be his followers. As those who are, who are saved by him from sin, we ought not to walk on in sin, but take whatever extreme step necessary so that we walk in obedience to him. And why do we do that? We do that in order to be salty. But not salty in how we speak of being salty. When somebody says you are salty, what do they mean by that? Sassy? Yeah, what else? <laughs> so, so, yeah, the, how you use language, uh, you know, maybe you're uh, uh, a little annoying or usually annoyed. Uh, uh, you, you quickly put people in their place and so on. So salty, as we speak of it, is not a good thing. But as Jesus speaks of it here, uh, as, a, as a different nuance, it's, a, it's of, of being a preservative, of being a, uh, something that adds flavor to, uh, to which there has no flavor. So Jesus says, uh, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, be salty, and be at peace with one another. So the, the purpose of this purity that he calls us, the purpose of saying no to sin, taking whatever steps, is not an end in itself. Holiness is not something so that we can exclude ourselves from the world, but be present in the world as the people of God, people whom God showcases, this is what my people look like. There's a different way to live in this world that, uh, that, that makes it different in this world in our relationships to one another. The world wants this, but the world doesn't know where to look. And that's why God places his people as salt in this world, to keep this world from rotting, to add flavor 
godly flavor to this world. So Jesus has these three sayings that concerning salt, and, and, and salt and fire are used in different ways in Scripture. So first thing is, for everyone will be salted by fire. What do we mean by that? Salted by fire. A uh, couple of Old Testament uh, passages probably clue us into this. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, we read, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And then in Numbers 18:19, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and, and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your offspring with you. Two things. Salt is associated with sacrifice. Salt is associated with covenant in their relationships with one another. The first one is, uh, sacrifices are salted with fire. Um, I'm not sure why it's done, but it's the instruction. Offer sacrifices with salt. Um, so when Jesus says, for everyone is salted by fire, uh, who's being salted here? Not sacrifices, but the disciples of Jesus but who are Jesus' disciples according to the passage we heard read before? We are what kind of people? We are living sacrifices. So Jesus says as living sacrifices, we ought to be salted. And how are we salted? By fire. We are salted by fire. Fire is not only used uh, as judgment, but fire is also used for purification. How are we made salty? We are made through the trials that we face in this life, the persecution we suffer for the sake of Jesus. And James uh, tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you're being salted. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Nothing concerning godliness, that is. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because we are being salted, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And as people of hope, we are the salt in this world. So the first thing is uh, God makes us salty through the trials and the persecution uh, that we face by forming us, perfecting us in Christ. By making us people of hope. Hope that is founded in, in Christ. And this hope that can, does not disappoint. Uh, and then he sends us into this world. So he says salt is good. Earlier on I was talking to uh, Billy Boyd, our elder. Uh, and he's a chef. And he knows how salt functions in food. Uh, salt functions as a preservative. Uh, even when I was growing up, uh, refrigeration in India was available, but only to certain people. So how do you transport meat and fish? You wrapped it in salt and you took it uh, because salt preserved, and even now preserved meats are salted. Uh, but salt is also a flavoring agent. You know, when you get hypertension and they said reduce your salt, so goes the taste, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so salt adds flavor. So that's why salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again, Jesus says? Uh, our sodium chloride... Uh, it doesn't lose its uh, saltiness, but the salt that was used in, in the times of, the, of Jesus was salt that was extracted from, dead, from the Dead Sea, which was often mixed with gypsum. So um, it could go insipid and lose its flavor. And salt as a seasoning agent, if loses its flavor, how can the seasoning agent be seasoned? It's worthless. 
And if we as the disciples of Jesus Christ who have been placed in this world to show this world a different way to live, to show a way of hope, if we no longer walk in the ways of our Lord, if we give, yield ourselves to sin, we, we cause others to stumble, we are no longer fulfilling the purpose for which he has placed us in this life. We are no longer people who uh, are the preserving agents in this world that is rotting. We are no longer the people who bring the flavor of God to this world. So saltiness has to do with the world into which we have been sent into our witness. But the third saying, saltiness has something to do with each other as well. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What, be salty with each other. What does that mean? Probably that second part where Numbers 18, 19 were the salt of the covenant. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to whom? To the Lord. What does the Lord do with it? I give to you and to your daughters and with you uh, and sons and daughters as a perpetual due. So uh, when we bring ourselves to God, God gives us to each other. That's what it means to be Salty is to be there for one another. We consider the other greater than ourselves. That's what it means to be the least of all. That's what it means to be the servant of all. So uh, not only does saltiness pro- make us a witness to this world, saltiness provides us the peace and unity that uh, Todd talked about this morning uh, as, as something that is part of our church culture is the unity that we have. But that's not just for our church. That's the call for all Christians because God, uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, three times he tells us that the world will know that he has come through our oneness, through our unity. When we are divided, we don't have a witness. And one of the chief elements of our witness is our saltiness toward each other, that we add flavor to each other's lives, that we, God has given us the gifts to minister to one another, to build one another up in the faith, so that the world may look at us and see uh, that people living in unity, people who are not at enmity, enmity with each other, uh, people who are at, uh, not comparing one another to see who is the greatest, but people who are servants of one another, um, that's what it means to be salty in this world. Again, I um, go back to that Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are the living sacrifices of God, salted, that is, uh, made the witnesses of Christ by the trials and persecutions that we face, formed in Christ so that we may be placed back in this world as his witnesses, a witness that extends even to our relationships with one another as, uh, as people whom God has given to each other. What does that mean for us? Who do we include? Who do we exclude? You've seen those signs on those doors, authorized personnel only. And when the alarm goes off at the airport, you know that somebody was not authorized to walk through that door. (laughs) You know, we are all people who, um, in our quest for greatness, in our comparison for one another, um, are people who try to exclude others. This is for us, not for you, right? We, we claim superiority over others, even sometimes over other believers. We compete with one another for honor, for power. Uh, we let selfish ambition 
uh, ruin our lives, even within our ministries. We call ourselves servants, uh, but we serve for recognition. Uh, we are jealous of the success of others. Uh, there's no promotion like self-promotion. And we have all these other new outlets of uh, social media and so on where we can promote our good deeds. We take the selfie with the homeless man with whom we gave a dollar. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, but, you know, we are experts in excluding people. Um, people who don't do it the same way as we do it, whether it comes to worship or, 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 or what we wear to Sunday services or whatever it is, we, we try to exalt ourselves or exclude others uh, or we compare ourselves to or... Um, or compare pastors or different ministry leaders, and we become like the Corinthians. I'm of Paul, I'm of Piper, and I'm of whoever. <laughs> uh, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, and then the holy party, I'm of Christ. Uh, I don't follow any human leaders. Uh, but we do that not so much to exalt those leaders, but to exalt ourselves, and we become our greatest authority. See, the most uh, common self-exaltation is when people hear uh, the teaching of the Word of God, and, and they say, well, you may say that, but I believe. Because the ultimate standard of what I believe is what I decide what the Word says. Even this morning, uh, in my cab ride over here, my, the cab driver asked me, are you going to work? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so I said, I, you know, I'm a pastor, and uh, I'm headed to church, and uh, I asked him, are you of any religious faith? And he mentioned that, and we started talking about God, and uh, um, he told me, well, I believe there's only one God. I said, very good. The Bible teaches that. I didn't tell him that the demons also believe that and tremble. <laughs> but, uh, 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 but I did tell him, yeah, the Bible says that. There's only one God. And I went on to speak of uh, how we, are all, uh, we have all sinned against God and God, what God has done for us in Christ. Then he quickly, just like that, uh, the Samaritan woman switched the topic to uh, how all religion is about business. Uh, I shared what I could, but, but he, there was a person, you know, and, I, and I hope and I believe that I was one of the first witnesses that, or one of the many witnesses that God would send his way to bring him to faith. But he was a man who said, I will believe what I believe because I am the ultimate authority, and if you say something different, I'm going to exclude you. Um, sometimes we compare ourselves with others, not to say that uh, uh, we are greater than them, but to say that we don't measure up to them. I said, well, you know, I don't have uh, what it takes to teach anybody or to serve in some capacity uh, because I'm not good enough, forgetting that the source of our confidence, the source of our competence is not in ourselves but from God. And therefore, whatever opportunity that we have that God presents to us, uh, uh, step up and serve. Whenever we are divided, whether because we have compared ourselves and exalted one over the other, or we feel as those who don't measure up, we are divided and we don't have a witness. That's the sad state of the church today. Uh, the very first schism happened between the, the Roman church and the Eastern church. And then the Roman church split, split into Protestantism and Catholicism, and the Protestant church hasn't stopped splitting. We split over all kinds of reasons. And in all of this, just as much as John didn't realize that those who are working against the powers of evil are working with us, we too denounce those who may not see things the way we do but are still servants 
of the kingdom. We don't recognize who is the real enemy and treat other servants of God as our, our enemies. Uh, I love Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Uh, in, in, in one of his characters, uh, we hear him say this, In nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. In nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. So these are all opposed to Sauron, but they're all divided among themselves, so they have no power to stand against Sauron. That's how the devil works amongst us. When he divides us up against each other, we forget that God has placed us to be together as, the, as, as those through whom he exercises his power over the Dark Lord. We fail to recognize who is the real enemy. This doesn't mean that doctrinal differences don't matter. Uh, but doctrinal differences has to be over what are essentials and uh, not because of the secondary and tertiary doctrines. The secondary and tertiary doctrines are important, but these are not reasons to divide over. When we are agreed on the essentials, the triune uh, God in, in whom we have, uh, who made us, who has redeemed us, that Jesus Christ is fully divine and fully human, that there is no salvation apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, Christ will return. These are the essentials of the faith. Uh, if someone does not hold to this, that person is not a believer, and we have no unity with those people. But there are other things. The exercise of uh, spiritual gifts, what gifts are available today and what are not. Christians are divided over that, but those don't have to uh, cause such division over us to, to exclude people or what ministries should women serve, or um, the issue that hard saying about Jesus, what, what Jesus says about uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage that we look at next week. Christians are divided over that, and uh, we need to be able to listen to each other and not treat each other as uh, outsiders when we are agreed on the essentials. Ultimately, it comes down to living the Christian life is, uh, is not about us. It's about who God is and who God has called us, and God calls us the strangest people to be his children and his servants. Yes, if you don't believe that, just look at me and look at each other. <laughs> uh, Paul would say this to the Philippians, that uh, these people who are, are preaching uh, uh, in contempt of him, he says he still rejoices because they preach the gospel, even if they are opposed to him. What about this hard saying about sin and chopping off body parts? You know, as we said it's, it's, a, it's a figurative language here. What Jesus is saying is don't cause others to stumble and shipwreck their faith um, and don't stumble yourselves. Well, how do we cause others to stumble? Uh, when leaders or pastors uh, fall, it's not just them, but there are others who, whose faith is shipwrecked because of the fall of these leaders. That's why pastors always need to point to Jesus. He's the one we look to. That doesn't mean pastors are excused from our leaders are excused from uh, leading exemplary lives. God holds us responsible for that. But when leaders fall, and we've seen that over and over and over again in Christian ministry, uh, we cause people to stumble. When we, take, uh, when we align ourselves to, to political or, or social movements that are not necessarily aligned with God, or even when they are, aligned with God, but their approach is one, of, uh, one that is not characterized by kindness and respect with those who are uh, in disagreement with them. Uh, we cause others to stumble. Today, many people do not want to listen to us about what we have to say about the gospel, about the Lord Jesus, because of the, the, the uh, political alliances that we have made or social stances that we have taken where we have uh, 
dishonored people, disrespected people. But the most common way in which we cause others to stumble is by our own sin. When we name Christ and we proclaim Christ, but uh, we don't live Christ, uh, we are seen as hypocrites. Uh, Do what I say, but don't do or how does the saying go? Do as I say and not as I do. Um, Yeah. We often have a, a, you know, mistaken notion that that grace grants us the license to sin, uh, that grace excuses us from sin. Uh, No, that's that's not the case at all. Actually, it's the opposite. Grace gives us the power to say no to ungodliness. That's what Paul writes in, uh, uh, in, in, to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, not that we may have an excuse to sin. Grace of God has appeared bringing salvation from sin for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace requires and enables greater righteousness, not less. Next week, uh, as we look at the marriage, divorce, and remarriage issue, uh, we will see that throughout the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus calls his people to greater righteousness, not less. You said you shall not commit murder, uh, but I say to you, you shall not even call someone a fool. Uh, and so on. He calls his people to greater righteousness. So grace empowers us for ra- So radical separation from sin is necessary for God's people. This is not just giving up chocolate, chocolate during uh, Lent or uh, giving up social media or television. You know, sometimes we, we kind of soften the edge about sin, especially our sin. You know? And we excuse ourselves and say, oh, you know, I'm only human. No one ever suspected of you of being other than human. No, we're all humans. That's a given. Or, or we say to ourselves, well, I'm not perfect. Uh, well, we didn't assume that either, right? But we have been empowered by God, by His Spirit. We've been freed from the mastery of sin. So God calls us to to live as what we sang. I am who I say, yeah. So we are saved by grace. Not that we may continue in sin, but that we may confess our sin. Because we all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are liars. But God in His grace has provided a way for ongoing sin in the believer's lives. And what we ought to do is confess, agree with God that what we did or what we said uh, how we relate to people are against his will for our lives and seek his help to live in such a way that we are indeed salt. So God has provided us a way. Um, we are not helpless. The give us this day on the Lord's Prayer that we pray not only is about our daily bread, it's about the daily forgiveness we need. Every day we stand before God and say, God, forgive me for I have sinned against you. And when we ask that, we can't turn around and say, well, I can't forgive you. That's why those two things are connected, where we say, forgive us our trust as we forgive others. If we go before God for forgiveness every day, and we need to, then we need to forgive others every day as well, because we stand in need of that. And finally, stay salty. We have been made salty in our conversion through the trials and persecution for the sake of Jesus. It's not just the trials of living in this fallen world. This is for the sake of Jesus. Those who name his name, we don't even have to go looking for persecution. Paul tells Timothy that anybody who seeks to live godly will be persecuted. It will come to you, come to us. But as God forms us through these trials and persecution, we are called to be salt in this world. 
That's what our mission statement says. To engage the city and impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to simplify it to two words, be salty. (laughs) Be salty in your workplace. Be salty in your home. Be salty in your neighborhood. Be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring that preserving and flavoring aspects of being one of Christ's disciples, one of his little ones, wherever he has placed us. And the greatest way we can do that is by our unity, our peace with one another, seeing each other as God's gifts to one another, and therefore treating each other as that. I know Calvary does well at that. Even, uh, as I mentioned before, several showed up for Laura Rodriguez's uh, funeral and also for the burial service, and someone appreciated how many of our people were there. Uh, But unity is not only necessary uh, in in these acts of kindness in in serving one another, but unity is also necessary when 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 we face trials and persecution from the outside. If we are not united, we will fall. So this is, you know, God's resources to us to walk in His ways, to be salty, His word, His spirit, and we embrace those two. But thirdly, His people. God forms us through his people. And we as his people ought to live in unity. So, be salty. God has called us to be that, and God helps us to be that. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that in him we have freedom from sin, that the victory that he has won, we, have, we participate in that. But Father, we often excuse ourselves, and uh, sadly we even cause others to stumble because we fail to see ourselves as those who have been freed from mastery of sin, and that we belong to you, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to belong to you as our new master. So help us, Father, to moment by moment yield to your Spirit, whom you have given us to empower us, so that we may indeed live lives that are salty, lives that bring your presence to this world through our character, through our relationships with one another. May your name be honored in our lives. Uh, in our witness, not only as individuals, but also as a church, for we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.